Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. All right. Hey, Tribe, you're about to get lifted. And when I say lifted, I mean John Legend style lifted with Christia Donaldson. Christia is a successful lawyer for a Fortune 100 software company by day. But every other second, she is making moves as the founder and CEO of Thank God It's Natural, a multi-million dollar natural hair care and personal products company. Welcome to the Tribe Christia Donaldson, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Listen, we're we're excited. Who knows what's going to happen on in the, within the next hour? Um, but you're going to drop some bits of wisdom. So, okay, I'm going to jump right into it. Let's say that I walk into your 11th grade English class, um, pull you out into the hallway, and ask you, "What are you going to be when you grow up? What would you tell me?" It's funny because I thought I was going to be some type of senator. Hmm. Uh, I was really into student government and I love being in a position of leadership. And I I really thought I was going to go into politics. But when I had my first taste of business, meaning when I actually got to Harvard Law School and met a woman named Pamela Thomas Graham from Detroit, who was the CEO of CNBC, I was like, that's what I want to do. It seemed less messy than politics, but it's like it also had the upside of like being in control and making decisions and being a leader as well. So yeah, now, I shifted. I shifted. You did. And you grew up in Motown, so you got to see politics. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if there is any more interesting, exciting, crazy theater for politics than Detroit City politics. Well, I mean, what was that like? Well, I mean, it's funny because now I live in Chicago, so I really get to see <laughs> a whole nother level to it. But I mean, it was great, particularly, you know, I take for granted the fact that like I'm a black woman to grow up in a predominantly black city with, you know, predominantly black politicians and having left there and moved to Boston and Chicago, which are a little bit, well, Boston, not as diverse and Chicago, a little bit more diverse. So it's just like I kind of grew up thinking I could do anything, that I could run the show. And in hmm. Detroit, despite kind of, you know, the reputation that it gets, it's like it definitely and it is very inspiring to see people in positions of leadership that look like you at a very young age. So it was good for that. Yeah, you know, I have I have four kids under six and I was thinking about this as I get prepared for, you know, the election, all that good stuff that, you know, They've only seen a black president like during their lifetimes, right? Like they've only seen a black president. So it's really interesting to think like that is their norm. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that shapes their aspirations. Yeah, that's going to be really cool because even for us, I mean, we I love Barack, but it's the kind of thing when he was running, you're like, it's kind of like, is this really going to happen? Can this really happen? It's like, you know what I'm saying? And it happened, but it was like. Even as a community, we were like, I don't know if this is going to happen, but I'm here for it if it does. So it's great that the kiddos get to grow up not even having to question whether that is something that they can achieve or will see again in their lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Okay, take me to senior year of high school and you're, you're applying to colleges, and universities and all this good stuff. What's on your mind at the, at the time? 
Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, I literally was overscheduled as particularly when I look back on things. People are like, how do you run a company and, you know, work as a lawyer? I'm like, I've had two, three jobs since high school. I've been doing this since like I was 16 or 17, even when I didn't necessarily have to. But what was on my mind was I just wanted to go to a good school where I would have the opportunity to be the best at whatever it is I was going to do. And that's how I ended up choosing Harvard, because I was like, this is where, you know, people go who kind of run things. So that's I wanted to be amongst people like myself um, for that for that purpose. So that's why I ended up at Harvard. And that was what was on my mind senior year. Okay, Detroit, Michigan. Yes. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yes. This is like going into some sort of parallel universe. I mean, did you, had you visited before saying yes? I did. Yeah. And what were your thoughts? I loved it. I mean, it was very diverse, but Cambridge also, like you said, is a parallel universe. It's almost like being in its own little bubble. It's like no place on earth like it. When I stepped off the subway, I felt like I was in a scene from Back to the Future. Like it was like (laughs) they have like this Cambridge savings bank and you look around, it had all these quaint little shops and nothing really was very commercial back then. You're like, where am I? So yeah, it was definitely a different experience, but I loved not only just being around excellence, but being around black excellence Hmm. and just, you know, being around people who were so driven, so smart, so passionate about whatever it is they were doing. It's funny because for most of my Harvard career, I mean, you know, I did well academically and went to Harvard Law School, but I felt like such a slacker. I was like, everyone's like up here doing spoken word and writing poetry and playing the viola. And I'm like, what am I good at? So, yeah, it was fun. You know, I found an opportunity to tap into my greatness at a much later date because there's not a real opportunity when you're a freshman to be like, oh, I want to build an empire. That's not what you go to college to do. But, you know, I love being around people who were just passionate about things beyond their academics. So it was cool. So the rest experience. of the world calls, you know, majors, majors. But of course, Harvard has to be different. And you have a concentration, <laughs> concentration. whatever yes. the heck that means. What was your concentration? My concentration was economics. It was the closest thing I could get to business. And it's funny. Um, I started off as government and then I just made the switch to economics Um because I wanted to have a more of a business focus, but it was still pretty abstract and obscure. I wish it was a lot more practical, but it was the closest thing I could get to touching business at the university. Mm. What kind of what kind of activities were you involved in? Oh, my goodness. So I was involved in Institute of Politics. So that was kind of mm. my my thing. Undergraduate council. Um, of course, Harvard's big on community service. So I had my like Franklin teen mentoring program. And then just the black community in general, you know, that's a job in of itself. So just (laughs) being black at Harvard, being a black woman at Harvard, you have to be in ABRA, which is Association of Black Radcliffe Women. So a variety of those type of activities. And oh, the B, which was kind of like a finals club. So yeah, I had a pretty wide range of activities going on. It was pretty diverse. Okay, any defining moments in in undergrad? I mean, were there any speakers that came on campus? I know there were, 
you know, a ton of them that were very interesting. Were, but when you look back at that four year period, are there particular moments you, you point back to and say, man, like that was that kind of shifted my trajectory, maybe even from from a mental standpoint? I think the biggest thing, you know, when I look back on it, I don't think it was one moment or one person. But as I'm older, meaning like 20 years away from the experience, it was such a magical place. Like I said, just to be around so many people with so much passion at such a young age, like you did not realize how intense these individuals were until you get into the real world. And you're like, wait, everyone's like pretty like, you know, whatever. Why are we so like intense? And I guess that's why when you said it's not a major, it's a concentration. Harvard people are very focused and concentrated. So it makes sense. So yeah, I think there wasn't a pivotal moment. But I think when I look back, it was less about the academics and the speakers, and more about the people that I met along the way that just like, made the experience, Hmm. like I said, so magical. So you graduate, and are we're still thinking politics, right? Well, like I said, I, I was I was on the politics bandwagon, like, initially, but I switched to economics my sophomore year. And by the time I went to law school, um, I'm trying to think, what did I do? I worked on Wall Street the summer of my senior year. Then I went to law school, but I still kept jumping over to the business school. I was over there all the time taking classes and I would have done a JD MBA, but I decided too late in my law school career to do that. So I didn't want to stay five years. But yeah, I was pretty much I was I was thinking politics when I got there. But by the time I left, I was definitely on the Wall Street bandwagon, not necessarily entrepreneurship, but something having to do with like corporate transactions, business, what have you. Hmm. I didn't know what it was, but I knew, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and and we always talk about you can't be what you can't see. And that applies at all levels, meaning from people, you know, from people who have the greatest education and people who have no education. It's like, I did not know what exactly it is that I wanted to do, but I knew it had like a corporate, a transactional component to it. Was it that you knew you could not work for someone else? I mean, you seem like the kind of person where deep down inside, you're like, eventually I'm going to be working for me. I did not have that notion during college or law school, but by the time I had that first job, I definitely (laughs) figured out that that was not going to work. And in hindsight, I realized my personality does not lend itself to being in corporate America. It just Hmm. doesn't. Hmm. Now, this is, I think you do, you have an interesting life in that, you know, a lot of the research shows that for entrepreneurs, the most successful ones are the ones who moonlight. So they don't make, they don't go all in initially. They sort of phase the new business in and then at some point kind of phase their day jobs out. (laughs) All right. So you are senior counsel for a Fortune 100 company. And then you're building your own company. Can you talk about the aha moment behind behind the brand and the company? Sure. So the aha moment was, like I said, I was working at a major law firm in Chicago. And at the time, I was just graduated from Harvard Law School. It was like the early 2000s. 
And the world was a very conservative place. Again, this was before anyone ever would have believed there would be a black or woman president. <laughs> so I was wearing a wig to camouflage the fact that my hair was curly because that was just like, you know, not curly and kinky hair was not worn in the workplace. And so I was wearing this wig to wear straight hair. And I felt like, oh, okay, if I look a certain way, plus my hustle, that's going to get me really far. Like if I looked apart and I have this amazing work ethic, it's going to get me really far. No, I almost got fired from that first job. And after that experience, I was like, screw it. I'm going to do me on all levels. And if they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. But I felt like I had sacrificed so much of myself as a black woman to be successful in this environment. And it didn't work. I was like, I have to put myself in a position where I can be me and be successful. And that was the aha moment for, thank God it's natural. So I was you, like, I can't do this. I can't do, I can't do this. Yeah. So, I mean, so you're wearing a wig, you're putting in the hours. What's a typical day like? And then the reason why I ask is because I teach around 200 or so freshmen a year and most of them have law school dreams. Mm-hmm. And I start to say, well, hey, you know, why do you want to go? Well, it just kind of it just seems like the right thing to do. Sounds awesome. It sounds you're a lawyer. <laughs> right. That's it's why. like the catch all degree. I'm like, no, you need to unpack this thing because you and I were at the celebration of black alumni for Harvard Law School a few months ago. And I met a lot of people who were like, hey, I got to get the hell out of this law firm. <laughs> Can you help me? It was sort of like, can you draw up a blueprint? Is there a code? Is there some right, kind of switch right. I can hit? Get me out of here. <laughs> what is the underground railroad to like life outside the law? Right, is it two tabs and then a couple of numbers? They got to scratch my head or what? I said, hey, you know, you just have to make the decision to do it. But you realize that even having the appearance and grinding and, and logging the hours that was not enough to get you through that place what, what was that like on a day-to-day basis like what was your in a real very real way what was your morning to evening like living the law firm life so yeah this was about mm, 13 years ago like 2003 and so you get to the office around nine like you know like between eight forty-five and nine thirty you know, check your email, start working on, you know, your documents, maybe your turning changes. Um, You go, you have conference calls throughout the day, you meet with the people who are senior to you and get direction and guidance. And then all night, you're pretty much from like four to like seven, eight, nine, 10, you're turning changes and reviewing things multiple times. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, when I look back on that situation, ain't nobody was go outwork me. (laughs) Nobody, you like I said, I've had three jobs. You're not going to outwork me. So when I looked around and I saw like, wow, people go on vacation all the time. People aren't here on weekends and they're still winning. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm like, you're not going to outwork me. And so I was like, it was like a, a moment where I was just kind of like, I could run a lemonade stand if I work hard and put all my energy, the amount of time I'm spending here into a lemonade stand, I could make 10 times what I'm making here. Mm. And it ended up instead of it being a lemonade stand, it being end up being shampoo and conditioner. But the point is still the same. I just knew deep down inside that like my work ethic and my hustle 
it just, it was not enough. It just wasn't enough. It, and it would never be enough. Like I can easily say that now I couldn't articulate it when I was 24, but something inside of me was just like, this ain't ever go work for me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I know everybody's first job is a little bit challenging, but I was like, this is just no, I'm never going to win. I'm never going to win in this environment, whether it's, you know what I'm saying? So I was like, I got to figure out where I'm going to win at. Wow. Wow. Now, as you started to break away, what were some things people were telling you? I'm sure there were a lot of experts around folks who knew what you should and shouldn't be doing. Like, What, what were folks saying to you? Well, I mean, the thing about it is it seemed kind of wonky that, you know, I had these two Harvard degrees and I was working at this these fancy law firms. And on the weekends, I'm selling shea butter out of the trunk of my car. So people are kind of like, they didn't know what to tell me. They're kind of like, I think your priorities are in the wrong place. And so for the most part, I kind of tune people out because people were not used to seeing kind of, you know, people with all this education making a shift to being entrepreneurial. You have to remember when we were in college before Mark Zuckerberg, it was literally prohibited to start a company or do any kind of business activities from your dorm. So the world back then, like 13 years ago, entrepreneurship was not this hot thing. It was mm. for the people who couldn't figure their lives out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like law, business, medicine, consulting, Wall Street. Those were the things that were sexy. I mean, you have to look back. I'm not sure. Isn't Google or YouTube like only 10 years old at this point. Yeah. Like it's something I have to, I'll Google it while we're on the phone. But the point is, I think YouTube just turned 10 years old. Yeah, started I, in 2005, February 14th, 2005. Yeah. So, you know, entrepreneurship used to be the place where you went, where you, when you screwed up and everything else. And now it's this hot, sexy, you know, we've got entrepreneur magazine and um, everyone is praising the successful entrepreneur. So people didn't quite get you selling shea butter out of the, the trunk of your car. Right. It didn't make any sense to them. They're like, you have a Harvard Law degree. Why would you be doing this? This is ridiculous. Okay. So did you ever have any internal thoughts of, damn, I have a Harvard Law degree. Why in the hell am I doing this? Or was it so, <laughs> you know, like, how did you feel on the inside about starting this company? I just felt like I did not know it. I kind of did. And I, it's, I, it's like a mix of things because hindsight is twenty twenty. I knew because if you look at the things that we wrote when we were total nobodies and we're still trying to like break into kind of what have you are excellent. I was like TGIN is a company, one of the fastest growing, you know, natural products companies, um, blah, 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 will be an American household name. And it's like we were this was like six years ago when it was like a little <laughs> infant idea in my mind. So it's like I knew deep down and I was speaking it, but like, if you looked around at everything that was happening around me and where we were, it, it didn't seem like it was going to actually accomplish or get to what I was saying it was going to be. So when you're, take it to the kitchen. I know I just have this image of you with large pots and pans and bowls, you know, getting shea butter delivered in, in bulk to the apartment and you're kind of just mixing it up like, what does it look like when, when you first, when you get the first iteration of the product, like what led, what were the steps that led up to that? So, 
you know, it's kind of like you described. I had shaved work, butter delivered. But the thing about it is I knew my lane. My sister is a way better cook than me, right? And so she was the one mixing up the stuff. And I was the one doing kind of like the business aspect of finding the products, getting the, the packaging, figuring out how to do things from cheaper, getting a website, all of these type of things. So it was like a lot of times with these hair care companies, everybody's like, I was the one in the kitchen and I was the one stirring the pot. No, I did do it like one or two times, but I realized I'm I'm the one that's in the streets closing deals and mm. trying to get things like logistically situated. And that's kind of my strength. So I try to play to my strengths more so than to my weaknesses or areas that I'm mediocre at. Yeah, I think that's key because you have... Obviously, the two of you complimented each other. And do you think I feel like I have a, there are a lot of solopreneurs out there and some of them are successful. God bless them. But a lot of people seem to be reluctant to bring on a co-founder because they're like, hey, I want this all to myself or, you know, when it goes public, I want to make the. You know, I want to make sure that I get all the upside and they're not bringing in people early on. It's not a partnership, right? It's kind of like this solo venture. Do you think that 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 harmony between the two of you was is one reason why you've been so successful? Well, the thing about it is I still own the entire company. So, you know, she was there for me in the beginning. Things have changed as we have gotten bigger. But I think, you know, you've got to have a great team. And mm -hmm. whether you're a solopreneur or you have a partner, the key thing is having a great team and having good communication. So, yeah. When did you know this thing was going to really happen? Like, when did you know you had turned a corner where you said, oh, man, this thing is kind of, this is big? Uh, I think when we got into Target, I was like, whoa, this is about <laughs> to take off. Like, it's about to take off. And People who work with me currently that were there before we got into Target, they were like, when I walked through the door, meaning when I first came here, I knew this was going to be big. And they've told, they always say, they're like, I knew this was going to be big. So, but for me, the moment was when we got into Target and landed that national retail because it legitimized us, meaning like there were people on a smaller scale who loved our products when they were in health and beauty supply stores and groceries, like natural grocery stores. But when we got that target, yeah, you know, people from Harvard, people from, you know, whatever, <laughs> like, OK, this is real. She ain't just, you know, in the park selling shea butter and incense like this is there's there there's something to this. Uh, yes. So now <laughs> you get the target deal. Can you walk us back a little bit? And how did that relationship like how long was that in the making? How long did it take you to get to get to the point to where they said yes? I think it was probably over a year because, you know, it's not like it particularly in my category. Every category is different. But in my category, they have kind of like a farm league or a partner who can kind of test your products in various markets in different beauty supply stores. And based on that kind of performance in terms of your your ability to deliver on time, your ability to ship, get your paperwork in, what have you, plus whether customers are responding to it, gives them a good indication of how you will do once you hit the national scale. So it was about a year in the making and you're still learning every single day. So some of the hurdles you had to jump through. So I guess they have to make sure 
makes sense, right? That you can fulfill orders, that there's certain quality to the product that's consistent over time. Was there any point where you're like, you know what the hell with this damn Target? Uh, we don't need them. It's no, already been no. Much. I mean, you just had to keep pushing <laughs> through. It was like it was endless amounts of paperwork, endless. And, you know, not only the paperwork, it's kind of like from a deal perspective, you were running the deal with Target and then the deal with my banker. Like, you know, basically paperwork for them because it's like we didn't need the financing, but we did get a line of credit and some additional, um, you know, capital invested into the company. Well, by invested, just kind of an infusion if if we needed it as working capital. It turned out we didn't. But that was like the amount of paperwork we were drowning in a sea of it. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So where is the company now? I mean, where do you... How do you feel? I mean, you're like again, you're you're working at this uh, at a Fortune 100 company by day, and you're running this company. At what point does it get too big for you to have two now. jobs? Now, now, yesterday, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, like next year, we'll be in four thousand stores, and it's like, wow, it's kind of like okay, CT, really, you need to get it together. <laughs> so the thing about it is I don't want to be impulsive. Um, but the issue is right now we are launching in CBS Rite Aid and Walgreens in 2017. So things are a little hectic and chaotic. And so every time things are a little hectic and chaotic, I was like, I need to just focus on TGIN. But as soon as you get through that storm, meaning you get through the paperwork, you get through the production of, you know, the goods for a certain purchase order, then things start to kind of normalize and it's kind of like back to normal. So it's like, yeah, but I really do think it's at a stage where it requires my complete attention and we'll see at what point or how soon I will get to the ability to just kind of focus exclusively on this. But I always tell people the money ain't going nowhere and slow and steady wins the race. And so, yeah, with that mantra in mind, I am, like I said, very methodical about when I will make the decision to do this full time. Hey, if you want candid, impactful advice on entrepreneurship, then look no farther than Christia Donaldson. Wow. Thanks for listening to A Tribe Called Yes. And tune in next week for part two of Christia's interview. And as always, keep saying yes.